I don't know why this works out this way. You know, we've been in a long study uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, and this morning we come to a very interesting uh, passage, uh, as it happens to be Father's Day. Uh, I'll be condemning fathers this morning, um, but uh, actually I'll be equally condemning all of us, so we're kind of all in the same boat. Before we do that condemning, though, let's pray, okay? Father God, we thank you that you are here in this room with us. We just sang about the, fear, the fact that we can set fear aside, and what a remarkable thing that is. That's, that's only true because of you, Jesus. And at this time in our worship, uh, we, we come and bow before you, and, and we just acknowledge how deeply, how badly we need to hear from you. We would ask that your word, by the power of your spirit, would open our hearts and our minds and engage us so that this time is not wasted. And all of this we ask in the name of Jesus, our King, the one most precious to us, God, our Savior. Amen. Well, uh, as I indicated, our topic this morning is a sobering one. It just is. Uh, Jesus' words are anything but fluffy and light, as you will see. These are Jesus' words. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Two of the most frightening words in all the Bible, maybe in all of human history, not everyone. Two very frightening words. Now, before we dive into those, um, I want to ask you some questions, kind of set this up. How many of you have ever received a traffic ticket before? Okay, good many of you. How many of you never have, never received a traffic? Okay, that's interesting. Uh, how many of you never have, but you should have on, on a number of occasions? Okay, that's kind of all of us now, right? We're all in the same boat. But when you get that traffic ticket, it usually uh, says that you are to appear in court on such and such a date, and there's some kind of formal charge. Sometimes it'll be a written code there indicating what kind of traffic violation you committed. And you can plead guilty, you can mail in your fine and kind of be done with it. You can handle it that way, or you can go to court. You can talk to a judge. You can plead your innocence and argue it there in court. And the judge will then find you guilty or not guilty, whichever the case is. And if it is guilty, well, then you pay your penalty or you go to jail or whatever happens to be your, your uh, sentence. Now, a similar kind of thing happens when you uh, find yourself in the awkward situation of being sued for whatever reason. You receive papers. They state the case that's uh, being argued against you. You receive a date to appear in court. And again, you appear before a judge. And the issue is resolved when you appear before a judge or more likely a date is set for the future when you will come back into that courtroom and then perhaps the issue will get resolved depending on the circumstances. And that is more or less the way it has always been in our civil court system. Whenever there is some kind of violation of the law, whenever there is some kind of legal charge against you, there are formal charges, there are written codes, there is a date stipulated for you to appear in court where the charges get resolved, get dealt with. That's the way justice kind of works in our system. And I really would back up from that a little bit and just say, you know, um, there, there is actually, and many people aren't aware of this, uh, th there is actually a spiritual realm where justice unfolds in a similar manner. In fact, all of our justice systems, 
whether it's the United States or another country, kind of uh, poorly reflect the justice that takes place in the spiritual realm. Uh, the, the Bible tells us that our universe is a moral universe. Did you know that? Our universe, this world, this cosmos that we live in is a moral cosmos. We live in a world made by God and that God is moral to the core. Uh, he's the literal embodiment of good. He's the embodiment of righteousness. He's the embodiment of truthfulness and faithfulness and things like justice. So in light of who God is, he has given us laws, laws that reflect his character. These laws are actually for our own good. They guide us on the path of living in concert with the moral fiber of the universe and with the God who created it. Uh, when we break these laws, we actually break ourselves or we break someone else. Uh, when we break these laws, whether we know it or not, whether we agree with it or not, we violate the very moral realities of the cosmos, the moral truth that is woven into all of creation and therefore into us as well. To break these laws is to go against ourselves. To break these laws is to go against who and what we were made for. To break these laws is actually against the grain of the moral cosmos. It's to go against the God who made and who sustains it all. And when we break these laws, we are dishonoring and ignoring the God who, of course, made us. And we are replacing him with other gods, gods we like better, gods that will let us decide what we think is right or what we think is wrong, what we think is good and what we think is evil. And when we do that, there are consequences, very serious consequences, as it turns out, both now in this life, the life we're living now, but also in the life to come, in the future, even after we die. Now, our moral failures result in all kinds of things happening, and we could make a quick list. I mean, things like broken relationships, broken relationships with people, broken relationships with God, broken hearts, quarreling, fighting, uh, hatred, murder, greed, coveting, on and on and on, you could add to the list. On a bigger scale, uh, it, the breaking of these moral codes is what results in nation warring against nation. Sin is everything from lying, cheating, coveting, hating, stealing, self-centeredness, sexual sin, you name it. All these things are breaking laws that God has put into place. And breaking these laws affects us now, but also will affect us in the future. And the Bible says that one day our sin, our moral failures will be accounted for. In fact, they will be formally charged against us. It's like there's a written code or a record of wrongs with our name written on it and everything, every way that we have broken this moral code. And we will have to answer for what we've said or what we've done or what we didn't say and didn't do. Uh, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, just as people are destined to die once, and, and he writes it this way because that's for certain. <laughs> you are going to die, and so am I. Uh, we are all destined to die once. That's an absolute certainty. And he says, just as certain as that, he says, after that to face judgment. That's just as certain. That day will be a little like walking into a courtroom again, only this courtroom, of course, will be a heavenly one. And the judge will literally know everything there is to know about you and about me. Everything. Nothing will be hidden. That will be a day of judgment. 
Now push pause button for just a moment. Let me ask you some questions and you can indicate, you can respond by raising your hand if it's appropriate. How many of you have ever told a lie? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. How, how many, so there are some liars among us. We've established that. Um, how many of you have ever cheated a test in school, a game you were playing, game of chess? You didn't report your income to the IRS? Raise your hands. Okay, so we have some cheaters in our congregation. Uh, how many of you have ever said something unkind, untrue, unloving about someone else? The Bible will call that gossip or slander or speaking evil against someone. Anybody? Okay, so we have some gossiping slanders in our congregation. Uh, how many of you have uh, had a wayward sexual thought? Now, you don't have to raise your hand on that. Only raise your hand if you've never had a wayward sexual thought. Raise your hand. Uh-huh. Thought so. So we have some lusters in our congregation. Um, how many of you have ever lost your temper and raged at someone? Raise your hand. Okay, Jesus calls that murder. That's murder, actually. That's murder from the heart. So we have some murderers in our congregation. I don't want to drag this out. But I'll bet we have some here, too, who have said unkind things about some minority group at one point. You know, racial slur. Uh, I'll bet we have some people here who were building something, and as they were building, you know, they missed the mark. They hit the thumb with a hammer or what have you, and in that process, a string of words came out that were insulting Almighty God and probably His Son Jesus too, using their names as swear words. And, and sadly, you know, we could go on and on just doing this, on and on with this list that's not hard for us to create or give acknowledgement to. Yeah, yeah, I've done that. And here's my point. I've, I've just done a quick rundown of a few things that contradict the moral character of God, things that we can admit to publicly, right? But these are things, understand, God never intended people to do to one another. And these are just the things that we think of that we can admit to publicly. I mean, think about all the darker things that, that we've done, things that we would not want to come out in public, ugly awful things, hidden stuff. Um, and consider this, God knows all, every bit, every jot and tittle of those things, all that stuff. And that stuff is sin. That stuff separates us spiritually, the Bible says, from God. And we all have this in us, every single one of us. The Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone, everyone, every one of us to his own way. And because of this sinful brokenness that's in us, we don't have the right priorities. We don't have the, the right care or the right concern for other people. Uh, we don't have the right understanding of who God is. We make him something less than he really is. Or we categorize him and want him to have him just in this area of my life, but not this area. You know, because of this sinful brokenness, uh, we don't have the right grasp of life and what life is all about and what my purpose should be or, or we don't understand exactly who it is that we are meant to be. And now that's all of us, church people, non-church people, Jesus followers, people who don't follow Jesus, Republicans, Democrats, it's everybody, everybody. Black, white, yellow, brown, all of us are in the same boat. So back to my earlier point, the Bible says there is this written code against us with legitimate charges written on it. And there is a day coming. 
when I will stand before the holy God of the universe and I will be asked to give an account for myself. And on that day, judgment about me will be rendered and the judgment will be guilty. Guilty is charged. And I will have no acceptable excuse or excuses. I will have no way of hiding from or denying the truth about me. And that's going to be an interesting day for me and for you. And that day is coming, says Jesus. Now, for the last several months, we've been teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's been one of the best studies, uh, something I've enjoyed as much as anything in all my years of teaching. Jesus has talked about just all kinds of great stuff, like who really lives the blessed life. That's where we started long, long ago. Blessed is the one who mourns and so uh, Jesus talked about the importance of following him, seeking first the kingdom. Talked about how to build and rebuild broken relationships. He talked about lust. He talked about anger. Talked about marriage. He talked about divorce. Uh, he's talked about the importance of truth-telling and the importance of loving our enemies and doing our good deeds, not to be seen by other people, but to be seen only by our Heavenly Father, who will then reward us, spiritually speaking. Uh, he's talked about the importance of overcoming anxiety, the importance of how we handle and prioritize our stuff, our money, and things like that. Just all kinds of things. And now here at the end, nearly the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, Jesus just starts warning us. That's what he does. And he does this, of course, because he cares. He wants us to know about the reality that is coming. And so he says, not everyone, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, apparently on that day, the day of judgment, some are going to say, Lord, Lord. Now, what that means, we can only guess. Uh, it's easier to tell you what it doesn't mean. It clearly does not mean, Lord, forgive me. It doesn't mean, Lord, I love you. It doesn't mean, Lord, I've been so blind, so wrong, so self-centered, forgive me. It doesn't mean, Lord, I repent of my moral failures, which are many. It doesn't mean, Lord, I put my faith in you. In fact, I think this group of people actually take talk of there being a moral God or a moral universe or moral charges or things like a judgment day with a grain of salt. And they always have. And so their statement, Lord, Lord, doesn't mean very much. I, I get the impression that up to this moment, they haven't given the Lord or, or his kingdom or his word or his wisdom or his warnings, any serious thought, serious consideration whatsoever. Things like a day of reckoning, a God who's going to hold all of us accountable, things like heaven, things like hell, just strange, even stupid ideas to this group of people. You know, it's been my observation over the years that there are lots of people like this. I've had conversations with some. People that have never done any research, never tried, never cared, just not interested. They've never read any books like the Gospels, you know, the story of Jesus' life or other New Testament books or books written about spiritual things and matters of this, of this nature. They just never bothered. In fact, I, I find that many people just kind of intuit what they think is true about matters of life or matters of death, spiritual things, life after death and that stuff. Many people, if they think about these things at all, are just kind of naively optimistic about what might happen. They think, you know, death is death. Uh, there is no God, probably, probably not. 
Certainly no moral reckoning. I mean, get real. If there is a God, surely my little sins won't bother him that much, and it'll all just kind of work out in the end. And when you ask them why, why, why do you think that way? Well, usually they can't tell you. Uh, they've heard others express thoughts like that, or they've just kind of intuited it. It's just their opinion. And often, they, again, they just haven't thought much about this. Well, friends, I, I want to be crystal clear this morning, as clear as I know how to be. Jesus is trying to get us all to think about this. This is important. And so questions like, is there a God? Or if there is, what would that God be like? And if there is a God, what does that say about me? What does it say about my priorities and my morals and my purpose and the, the brokenness in my life? And what, what does it say? They're not asking questions like that. They haven't stopped to wrestle with or to think about things like, you know, where does my sense of fairness come from? We all have this. Your parents, you know, didn't teach you as a little child to, to practice fairness. You, you knew it intuitively. Uh, you, you see this in little children. They're playing. Maybe they haven't even learned to talk yet, but one child takes a toy away from another. What does the child do who had the toy taken away? They cry. You know, they, they, they might scream, they might hit, they might do a number of things because something in them says, that's not fair. You just took my, that's not fair. Where does that come from? Who put that there? Where does my longing for justice come from? Here's the interesting thing. We all do have a longing for justice when some unjust thing has been done to us. We're a little less curious about or longing for justice when it has to do with punishing our, our problems, our sin. But we have this longing for justice in us. Where does my longing for meaning come from? We all want our life to mean something. We want our life to work toward the accomplishment of some greater good. Where, where does my sense of right or wrong come from? Where, where do my feelings that death is wrong and death can't be the end of it all? Where does that stuff come from? Why do I feel that way? Well, understand feelings like that are, are almost universal human concerns and emotions. Why? Why? Why do we think and feel this way? Why do we ask questions like this? We're the only species of animal that does. The Bible says it is because, of course, we are made in the image of our God. These ideas, these feelings, these thoughts, it's part of our human DNA. Having these ideas in us, what should happen, it, it should turn us toward God. It should humble us. It should make us look to God for answers, for truth, for understanding, for things like forgiveness, but it doesn't. The remarkable thing is it doesn't. Why? Well, the Apostle Paul talks about this in a letter that he wrote to the Christians living in Rome, and uh, it's very interesting what he says here. It's, it's kind of eye-opening if you understand what he's saying, and I'm going to do what you probably shouldn't do in a, in a sermon you know, that's kind of a judgment sermon. That's kind of how I would characterize this topically, uh, and that is I'm going to read a long passage of Scripture to you. Are you with me? Okay, it'll be on the screen so you can follow along, but these words are so helpful. They're so insightful into the human condition our human nature. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. There's a key phrase. They suppress the truth 
by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. When you woke up this morning, man, oh man, uh, the, the green grass, if you're sprinkling it on, had those little, you know, the little water droplets sparkling. The sky was blue. The birds were singing. There was a fresh fragrance in the air. Do you know that every one of those things and more are literally shouting the glory of Almighty God? Shouting it for all to hear, for all to see, you see. And yet, what do we do? Well, we suppress the truth with unrighteousness so that men are without excuse. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And we do this all the time. You know, we talk about mother nature. Who the heck is mother nature? But Mother Nature is doing all these wonderful and glorious that we substitute the, the, substitute the truth of God for a lie. And we make up other things that we can feel better about as we feel better about ourselves so that we don't have to face or wrestle with a, with a moral God. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You understand what Paul is describing in that text is the human condition. It's the human condition. You see, there are these Lord, Lord people that Jesus mentions here in the Sermon on the Mount and their Lord, Lord is the equivalent of saying, hey God, if there is a God, doubtful, if there is any such thing as charges and judgment day or heaven and hell, cover me, would you? And that's what Jesus means when he says, not everyone. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, you see, is gonna wind up in heaven. Now, when we read that, the first time I read, you know, Lord, Lord, it almost sounds like a prayer. It sounds like they're praying to Jesus. It almost sounds like a plea. It sounds like maybe they even have a desire to follow Jesus. But understand, that's, that's not what it is. It's not what it means. How do we know that? Well, look what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, the doing here is the indicator of real relationship. That's what the doing here is. It means these people have real relationship. That's what real relationship looks like. It's saying, Lord, Lord, you see, that by itself means nothing unless it's accompanied with real relationship. Obedience is relationship. It's trust, it's love, it's faith, it's repentance, it's relationship. I don't know if we have any Lord, Lord people here this morning. But if we do, understand, Jesus is warning you in the strongest of language you need to think, you need to wrestle because you see ignorance of God, pleading ignorance. Well, the grass is shouting the glory of God. The flowers are shouting the glory and the presence and the reality of God. The sky, the hills, the mountains all shout the existence, the greatness, the majesty of God. And yet we're able to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Well, Jesus is warning us you need to wrestle 
Again, because ignorance of God or ignorance of Jesus or ignorance of spiritual truth, that's not a good excuse. There are no good excuses. Being naively optimistic is not a wise way to prepare yourself for what's coming. And Jesus wants you and me to know that and be prepared. Now, there's actually another group of people that Jesus uh, warns in this passage, and they're, they're totally different than this first group. Uh, first group is very disinterested in anything religious, right? Not this second group. They're very, very interested in religion. They, they certainly do believe there is a God. Uh, perhaps like the demons know that there is a God, right? But these people believe there is a God. They, they are all about knowing the rules, all about keeping the rules, and they are all about doing religion. And they feel pretty good about their religious efforts, pretty good about their religious accomplishments, pretty good about their good deeds. And they are constantly comparing themselves with others. And as they do that, they fare pretty good in those comparisons. In fact, so good, they think God should be impressed too. I mean, after all, look at all they're doing for God. Prophesying in his name. They're driving out demons in his name. They're doing miracles in his name. Man, I read that list and I'm like, wow, whoa, that's pretty good. I'm impressed, but apparently God isn't. Well, why? Why isn't God impressed? It's so interesting here again. This is the judge we're talking about. He's able to look inside. He sees the heart. He knows exactly what's going on. And while their activities might be in the right place, apparently their hearts are not. Not at all. Um, and, and these people understand are the ones in the New Testament that we meet. They're the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. That's who these people are. And their whole life is about religious activity. It's about religious duty. It's about religious accomplishment. And they are pretty sure God owes them. In fact, at times they resent God when, when something doesn't go their way, when the blessing that they think they've earned is slow in coming, they get a little frustrated with God, a little testy with God. God, why aren't you keeping your side of the bargain? I'm working my tail off here. How come you're not doing what I expect you to do? And that's kind of the deal right there. These folks figure that they have struck some kind of bargain with Almighty God. And if they do good for God, then God should turn around and do good for them. Friends, that is not a deal that God ever makes. Not ever. There's an even bigger problem that these folks have. A bigger problem than thinking along those lines of making a deal with God. And this is very unfortunate. Uh, but these folks don't begin to fathom their own sinfulness, uh, which is really what separates us from God, right? So that's the, it's our sinfulness. It's the brokenness within us. I mean, they, they know they're sinners. Sure, of course, who doesn't? Occasional bad thoughts and occasional lapse of uh, judgment or an occasional breaking of a rule. But I mean, they sort of approach it like, well, come on. Look at me compared to him, you know, is, is sort of their approach. Look at me compared to the fishermen. Look at me compared to the merchants. Look at me compared to the Samaritans over there. Look at me compared to that tax collector. Look at me compared to the farmers. Uh, I am killing it compared to them, God, is sort of their approach here. And so surely, God, you appreciate me and what I do for you. Now, we've already observed some of this last week, what Jesus had to say about this group of people. Um, he said they don't practice what they preach. They preach one thing, they put burdens on other people's shoulders. 
Now, this is another way of Jesus saying, yeah, they, they tell people about sin, but they don't see their own. They don't practice what they preach. And he said, everything they do, they do for men to see. So their primary modus operandi is, I want you to see the good that I do so that I can get your praise or maybe get you to follow me or what have you. And of course, God, because of who he is, the kind of judge he is, he sees right into the heart and he sees what's going on. Jesus called these people hypocrites. You remember whitewashed tombs, sons of hell, he called them, blind fools. In fact, he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Understand, this is the harshest language Jesus ever uses to talk about anybody right here. And he's talking to religious people. That's who he's talking to. People who see everybody else's sin, but have a real hard time seeing their own. And it's to these people that Jesus says, do not judge or you too will be judged. It's to these people that Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck, the piece of dust that's in your brother's eye. You see, this person, this self-satisfied, religiously good person doesn't really see their sin. And because they don't really see their sin, uh, they certainly don't appreciate anything that Jesus came to do about it. They don't see or let alone appreciate their personal desperate need of Jesus. Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection, it went right by them. Think about it. These are people who heard Jesus teach, watched Jesus heal, heard about Jesus raising someone from the dead, listened to Jesus teach about the goodness and the greatness and the loving kindness and mercy of God Almighty. And during that time, most of that time, they were plotting with others about how to get rid of this guy. He's messing up our system. Bottom line, they don't see their need of a savior and they think they deserve God's mercy. In fact, they think that their good works are good enough to save them. How dare God say you are a sinner? How dare Jesus say you can't save yourself? How dare Jesus put himself up to be some kind of savior, some kind of Messiah for us? And if we're being honest, we kind of have to agree with them because there is this part of the gospel that's bothersome. And that's what we're talking about this morning. I mean, we'd have to agree that there's a part of the gospel that's just plain offensive. I find less offense at God, you know, calling you a sinner or telling you that you need a savior or telling you that you can't save yourself. But when I turn that around and I apply that to myself, there is some offense to that because that's underlining and highlighting the degree to which I am broken. And I have a hard time seeing the degree to which I am broken. And, you know, the Bible even tells us that that's what sin in us does. It deceives us. It's hard for us to own who I, who we really are. You see, God says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, I'm, I know I can't. I can't understand it. I need someone to graciously show me my sin and let me see who I really am. Let me wrestle with my brokenness and my complete inability to fix myself. I've read many a self-help book and um, sometimes I can make a little tweak here and a little tweak there and, 
and uh, I can improve a little bit, but I can tell you the truth. Um, I cannot fix myself. Despite some efforts of mine, I cannot fix myself. It, it requires something supernatural to have that happen. Now, that very thing happened in the life of the Apostle Paul. In fact, it changed uh, his whole life around. You understand, the Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. He was one of these Pharisees, you know, teacher of the law, scribe, and so on. Uh, he's one of the guys saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and persecute Jesus and his followers in your name? But of course, you know, something happened, didn't it? Uh, some years later, Paul writes to the church at Galatia, which is there in Turkey, uh, it would be Turkey nowadays, and he says this, he says, you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, that is the practice of my Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. You see, Paul, in the name of God, was trying with all his might to destroy the work, actually the son of God. That's how deceitful our sin can be. He thought he was doing God a favor. He thought he was doing what, what God would be so impressed with, you see. Paul is that hypocrite, that whitewashed tomb, that son of hell, that blind fool, that snake or that viper that Jesus was talking about. And yet Paul proudly thought he was doing God, God's work, you see. But then Jesus graciously comes to him, comes to Paul. And when that happens, everything changes. Uh, again, some years later, Paul's writing to the church at Galatia, and he says this, know that a man is not justified. That word is, is talking about the verdict, guilty, not guilty. If you're justified, you're not guilty, right? And uh, the, Paul says, know that a man is not justified or declared not guilty by observing the law. That's a 180 for Paul because he thought absolutely a person is justified, declared not guilty by obeying the law. But that's not what he's saying now. Instead of by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Wow, that's, that's a 180, Paul. Now, that's what Jesus meant when he said to that group of people, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, Lord, Lord, people are guilty and can't just make their brokenness, their sin, their fallenness go away. Friends, I don't want anybody to leave here this morning confused on this one little bit. You and I, we have a, we have a written code against us. And ignorance or naive optimism is not a solution or a good excuse to say, Lord, Lord, when it's too late. That's not a good thing. Or to say, Lord, look at everything I've done for you, all the religious accomplishments and achievements and all the good works I've done in your name. You see, none of those things hide or erase the truth about me. I have not loved God. I have not loved people the way I should. And as Paul came to discover, even about himself, you see, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all of us guilty. So, you know, what is the solution? Who's going to save us from this seemingly pretty hopeless predicament? 
Well, Jesus explained this one time, and I always, uh, I'm always struck when I read these words. This is in the Gospel of John. You know, this is Jesus speaking, and he kind of speaks about himself in the third person. Uh, there's a term in the Old Testament, son of man. It's a title that Jesus took to himself, and, and he frequently referred to himself as the son of man. And he does that here in this text. This is in John chapter 3. And, and uh, Jesus says this. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Think about that. Jesus is saying no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, which is me, he's saying, <laughs> which is me. Wow. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be Lifted up, that's an Old Testament story unto itself, a time when God saved his people. The snakes were biting them, they were dying, and he said, make a snake and hold it up on a stick, and as you raise it, people will look to it, they'll have faith, and the poisonous snakes won't kill them. That's what's going on there. And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus talking about himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, talking about himself, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son, talking about himself, into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him, talking about himself. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Talking about himself. And there you have it. Believe in God's one and only son. That's the solution. Jesus. And of course, when Jesus says believe, he means follow. When Jesus, he doesn't mean give some kind of purely intellectual assent. No, no, he means follow. He means obey. He means do life with me. Have a relationship with me. And not a casual one. Not one where just occasionally you think about him or just a, occasionally you connect with him, but, but a real, ongoing, deep, developing relationship with him. And of course, that relationship begins when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, but it goes on. Something the Bible talks about, sanctification, it's a process that goes on for the rest of your life. There's uh, moments of triumph and victory, saying no to sin. There's too many moments of when we don't do that, and we need his grace, we need his forgiveness. We sang about it this morning. Paul wrote about this too. He said, when you were dead in your sins, that means not spiritually alive, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, with the Messiah, with Jesus. And he forgave us all our sins. Imagine all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so that's God's good news. That's, that's what we celebrate in the gospel. But before you get to the good news in the gospel, you have to hear this message, which is the bad news of the gospel. It's our brokenness. It's our sin. But we bring that brokenness to him. We bring that sin to him. We do so in faith. And when we do that, he canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness by nailing it to a cross. Friends, put your faith in Jesus if you haven't. 
I mean, today's the day. If God is talking to you, if Jesus is talking to you, you understand here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you've been with us through this, it it gets intense here right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is warning us. Why? Because he cares. He knows the seriousness of this. He also knows because of our sin, our tendency to ignore the seriousness of this. And so he's saying, not everyone. Don't be in the not everyone category. Put your faith in Jesus. Now, just one more thought. Dads, because it's Father's Day, I've got 20 more minutes here. Uh, No, just this. You know, the greatest gift you can give to a spouse or give to your children is just you trying to practice your faith. It's, it's you trusting day in, day out. It's, it's you when you sin and when you fail and when you blow it, uh, just acknowledging that that is the truth about you. But you know what? You have a Savior whose mercies are new every morning. You go right back to that Savior. Let your children, let your spouse see that pattern develop in your life and let the Holy Spirit work in you in such a way that you become slowly more like Jesus. I mean, that's, that's what being a dad is all about. I mean, you model to your children by the priorities that you have what priorities really matter. You know, does worship matter? Does involvement in the lives with other Christians where there's mutual accountability and a mutual attempt to grow, does that matter? Does serving matter? Do your priorities represent Jesus' priorities? The greatest gift, greatest gift you can give your family is just to line those two up. I will do what Jesus wants me to do. I'll do it very imperfectly, unfortunately. But his mercies are new every morning. Always be about giving that gift to your family. Pray with me. Father, even as we talk about these things uh, and sobering, serious stuff, what Jesus says here, not everyone. I mean, Father almost frightening words, really. Because we would love to present ourselves to you thinking that we merit your good graces. But both your word and even the truth in us tells us that can't be true. We try to fix ourselves and we don't get very far with that, Father. We really need the deep working of your Holy Spirit along with your truth and your word to work transformation and change in us over time. Would you help fathers, mothers, children, all of us, God, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him, Jesus. Thank you for coming from up there, down to here. Not to condemn the world, but to save it. Help anyone wrestling this morning, God. They're not sure where they stand with you. They're not sure whether they ever really have trusted in you. Help them to do that this morning. Help them to pray, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Jesus, I need you to be my savior. And then, Father, help all of us to walk in your grace and your mercy. 
Help us to celebrate and be grateful for the righteousness that alone comes from Jesus. For we pray this and we ask this in his name. Amen.